Welcome back to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan from Adobe, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking to Natalie Louie, the Senior Director of Product Marketing at Zora, on pricing, parenting, and everything in between. As a parent in the three under three club, she has had experience with balancing work and life, and I think all of her insights are going to be really valuable for the podcast today. She also shares her amazing four-part pricing framework, which you definitely are going to want to hear more about. I also want to give a shout out to some of our newest Sharebird podcast hosts. Yasmin Terehi, she hosts the Essential Go-To-Market, a fantastic video series that you can catch on LinkedIn. And I also want to congratulate Jeffrey Vassell for taking over Marcus's big shoes on the Product Marketing Experts podcast. Join us on some of these amazing podcasts, all part of the Sharebird family. Women in Product Marketing is proudly supported by Clue. That's Clue with a K, the competitive enablement platform for all product marketers. This podcast is produced by Sharebird, the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It is the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. And if you have any feedback on our episodes, so things that you liked or things you want to hear more of, please send me a note on LinkedIn or feel free to email podcasts at sharebird.com. All right, let's do this. Hello and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm thrilled today to be speaking to Natalie Louie, who is the Senior Director of Product Marketing Strategy at Zora, a leading cloud-based subscription management platform. Natalie has had a fantastic career starting off in finance and then moving into product marketing at Oracle and hired until she landed Zora. And she's navigating all of this while growing a family with three kids at home. I also wanted to mention Natalie is hiring right now for her team. So be sure to listen up and we'll send you some information about that as well. So great to have you, Natalie. Thanks so much for joining. Great. Thanks, Mary. Really excited to be here. Talk about all things PMM. Yes, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit more about Zora and what product marketing strategy is all about? Yeah. So at Zora, we power subscription businesses. So anytime you're paying your monthly bill for Netflix, Disney, Uber, Lyft, you know, usage fee, we power that. We do the price catalog. We send the bills out. We collect the invoice payment collections all the way down to rep rep for the office of the CFO. And at Zora, we break up our product marketing team into two groups. We've got our horizontal or core product marketing. So that's all your traditional product marketing where you own the product launches, you team up with the product managers, you're doing all the assets, your two pagers, your decks, your press releases, you're working on the product roadmap with the PMMs. And so you're really owning the messaging and positioning for core products. Then I'm in a different group now called the product marketing strategy. So it's a layer around the core product marketers where we think of all the products and what's the portfolio messaging and positioning? What's the competitive intel? What's the pricing and packaging? How do we work with alliances and partners? How do we come up with the keynotes and breakout sessions? for all of our different virtual, now virtual events, you know, soon to be in person again. So it's everything that typically distracts core product marketers where it's okay, I can't do that product launch or I'm behind on something because I've got this other ask, right? I've got to do competitive intelligence. So now we break those two functions up. 
That sounds amazing. And what a great way to focus in on all these strategic elements that are so important to a business, but yes, often get left by the wayside. So that's really cool to hear about. I wanted to dig in a little bit more with you on pricing. So I know that this is something that can actually be kind of intimidating for a lot of product marketers. Mm -hmm. How do you typically approach a new pricing project? Yeah, pricing is something I'm starting to see more and more product marketers own because we're already so strategic when it comes to messaging and positioning. Or you're thinking about the entire journey and life cycle of a prospect to a customer and you're working with sales on that. And so when you go from how do you open up that first conversation to doing the discovery to closing them, then there's pricing and packaging. And that has to be aligned with everything that you're creating. And so if you've got someone else creating pricing and packaging and you don't have a stake at the table, it can just be very jarring because it doesn't tie with your message and positioning. I've seen that before in previous companies where we message and position, hey, buy any marketing channel that you want. And then we price and package all these marketing channels and silos, right? So when we can connect the dots there, pricing and packaging can now become a part of the messaging and positioning. And if not a very strategic lever to actually drive more revenue for a company. So I always approach it first with what's our messaging and positioning and how should that pricing and packaging fold into that? And it all starts with really four things. One is your target market. Who are you going after, right? What are their shared problems? Product marketers do that all the time. We're defining our target market. And then you get into, well, what are their use cases? What do they want to do? And then that comes your packaging, right? What features are we going to give them You know, based on the target market they're in? That's square within a product marketer's purview. And then it gets into, well, how do they find value? So that's what metric do you price on, right? And that's kind of the third lever. And then last piece is your price point. And when you're figuring out your price point, that's when you probably need to pull in finance because if there's, you know, cost of goods sold, you want to make sure there's healthy margins and you're profitable. But those first three levers I talked about, those are all things that product marketers already do today. So it's really natural progression for a product marketer to say, okay, I can start stepping into pricing and packaging strategy because I've got all that strategic data in my head already. I think that takes away a lot of the fear that a lot of product marketers have about pricing, because I often see people starting at the fourth point. They start with, hey, what are our competitors charging? Let's try to do something and equate that to the perceived value that our product has and then kind of work its way backwards. And then all of a sudden at the end, you're sort of putting the positioning and messaging together on a slide or on a website. So I love that approach, starting with that positioning and messaging, making sure that you're working in tandem with the overall value that you're trying to give talking to those sales stakeholders, as well as executives and everyone else that you're working with. So that is a really refreshing approach. I know that you have some resources around pricing that you've actually developed. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how listeners can find that? Yeah. I also work with I'm Moonlight with a company called Impact Pricing and I'm subject matter expert there. We came up with a training framework on how to think about pricing and packaging. And it's about those four levers that I talked about. And I did a talk with the Product Marketing Alliance. This was pre-COVID, so many years ago. And then they packaged up that pricing and packaging keynote into the core training now. So when people are getting their certification, that class is a part of the training. That's wonderful. What are some of the other common pitfalls you see with people approaching pricing from potentially the wrong angle or maybe from the first time? What are some of the things that people should try to avoid? 
Yeah. I mean, you brought up one of those and it's very common to think about price points first, right? Everybody thinks about prices. Oh, what am I going to charge? And that's cost plus pricing, right? You're going to mark it up. What am I going to charge? But when it comes to things like subscription businesses, which I'll speak to, and that's kind of where my superpower is, is when you're thinking about a subscription business, it's all about that value and what a customer wants. And that oftentimes is the hardest part right? Figuring out all of that. And that takes the longest amount of time. The easiest part is figuring out your price point, right? That's something you do at the very end. You know, once you figure out your pricing, your packaging, your strategy, then you crunch some numbers and you put on your price point, but you'll never lead with that. And so I think people underestimate how long you can spend on figuring out your pricing metric, your packaging, and your target market and your messaging and positioning to them. Because once you have that done, then the rest kind of falls into place. And I think another thing too, is looking at data and data can be qualitative, it can be quantitative, meaning how have people been buying things before, you know, how do competitors sell it? If you're interviewing people, right, that's qualitative data that you can bring together. I mean, every data point is so important and collecting that data from your customers, from your salespeople, you know, from the market, that's a piece of it as well, because that's going to help drive your decisions. For instance, let's say you have a feature and you charge for it and then your competitors all come up with that same feature and it's free, right? You got to collect those data points and say, okay, given this is a table stakes feature now, we probably shouldn't pay for it anymore. We also should give it away for free because people are expecting it. So maybe we package it. So being on top of all that data and changing your pricing is important. And then the last piece I'll leave is pricing isn't something you do once and you forget about it. I go back to the Ronco rotisserie chicken, like set it and forget it. You know, I talk to a lot of people and they go, oh yeah, we set our pricing. And then every three, four years we look at it. Pricing has its own roadmap, just like a product roadmap. Because as a product is changing, you're enhancing things, competitors are releasing things, you're going to change your pricing and you can increase your price, decrease, repackage, and making sure you've got a good pricing roadmap to go along with your product roadmap is really key because then you can really grow revenue and drive not only more revenue, but more profits to higher margins. That is such a refreshing take. I'd never really thought about that, but that makes total sense. Thanks so much for sharing that. Switching gears a little bit back to the strategy role overall. I imagine you work with a lot of different stakeholders with all the different components of the job that your team actually focuses on. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about stakeholders? For example, do you treat each of them the same or each stakeholder group the same? Or how do you approach that? Yeah. So when it comes to thinking about everybody, I treat them all differently. And I think for product marketers, it's naturally, you know, we say this, I product market everybody. So not only at work, but also at home, that's another conversation. So as I'm talking to these stakeholders, I always get to understand, okay, what do they need? Maybe what are their OKRs? Get to understand those and what outcomes are they looking for? So that when I do try to go partner with them, I'm able to speak to that, to show them, look, we've got common goals. We may call them different things. It may seem like it's different, but at the end of the day, this is what we're all trying to achieve and we want to achieve that together. So I usually start off before and ask like, Hey, I know you got this project. You've got this goal. Like, yes, I do. Right. Get some agreement. Hey, I, you know, I, I think I've got something to help your goal. And then I begin talking about the project. Can we partner together? And I think when you take that product marketing approach of what does each stakeholder need and want, and how can I show them that our projects do align on that front and lead with that, I really find no issue working with cross-functional partners. And I love working with cross-functional partners. Yeah, I've never had much pushback when I take that approach. I love that. The stakeholders as persona point of view. You'll never be seared wrong when you're thinking about them as distinct. Yeah. That's really clever. <laughs> 
And I think the bigger your company, the more that's important. Like when I joined Oracle, when they were acquiring responses, I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is like the mothership of tech companies. There's so many people, right? During the acquisition, this is overwhelming. But then I got to know each person I was working with and what they needed. And then over time had these great relationships across Oracle, where if I had a project, I could really move the needle in the Titanic, it felt like. As people are thinking about applying this to their own job, you mentioned understanding their goals, building that relationship. Are there specific things that you would think about when meeting stakeholders for the first time? So maybe blatantly asking them what motivates them might be a little bit too forward, but is there anything that you would recommend to help to build those personas so you can interact with each differently as people are starting out? Yeah, I always do a one-on-one to get to know them. So whenever I start a new company or I start at a new company or I see us hiring new people, if I'm my mind, I go, oh, I often work with that group. I want to get to know them. I'll do a one-on-one, just do a quick intro, 30 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes and just get to know them and say, hey, just want to get to know you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What are you going to be doing here? And it's almost like a post-hire interview, right? You're just interviewing them to get to know them. And I feel like those conversations are so key because that's where you're understanding, okay, what are they doing here? What are they in charge of? What are their goals? Right. And you ask them, okay, great. And so what are you in charge of here? You know, what are the things you're looking to do? And, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how we can partner together. You know, here's what I do, right. In my group. And if there's ever anything I can partner with you on, please feel free to reach out. So I believe it's always like a two-way street, right? I always offer, hey, this is how I can help you. Always reach out to me anytime. And then when you kind of open the door, make that first step, people always feel open and willing to work with you more too. I think that's such a great piece of advice and so awesome to get the foot on the right path at the beginning. And I feel like people really underestimate that element of developing those one-on-one relationships and it has to start somewhere. And I don't know about you, but I've found during COVID when we're all virtual, People have been very open to meeting with me, even if there's not a set agenda just to network and meet and kind of share ideas. So I found that it's been a nice way to break down barriers of location and actually talk to groups that I hadn't normally been in contact with across not just my organization, but the company at large to be able to see if there's any kind of synergies or any ways that we could connect across. I don't know if you've had similar experiences with that in more of a virtual setting, but I've actually found it to be very beneficial. And most people, we'll take a meeting is what I found. Yeah. It's rare when someone turns down a one-on-one, right? I always put, you know, one-on-one, their name and my name, and I'll slack them and say, Hey, put in a one-on-one, you know, just want to talk or get to know you when it's new people. It's, Hey, you know, just want to see how we can collaborate together. So yeah, I mean, they may move the one-on-one, but we'll always end up having the (laughs) one-on-one. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. I also wanted to talk a little bit about COVID and that intersection of professional and personal life. And I know that it has hit a lot of people very hard in a lot of different ways, but you had a unique situation where you actually started off last year with three kids under three. So how did you even approach that as a working professional with three kids under three? I think it was just in survival mode. Like I didn't have time to think at that point because COVID's happening. You pull them out of school. That's not safe. My husband was also a physician. So he was going to the hospital and we're just, okay, what do we do? And so we asked my nanny if she could live with us full time. 
And she luckily agreed to because she was also afraid of going home, coming back, getting COVID. And then so she agreed to do that. We worked something out immediately, the extra pay that we would give her. And she lived with us full time. And so she's still living with us. And that had to change. We had to figure out how to have my office here, have the kids. I mean, I don't know how I did it. It's kind of a blur now, but it was hard. And I also told work, right? I was very transparent at work. They knew I had young kids. There actually weren't that many people in our group that had young kids. And so I told them, I was like, look, with my kids home all the time, you know, I have to help out my nanny because there's three kids. You know, she was actually only hired to take care of one. Now she's got all three, but you know, you'll see them sit in my lap. They'll show up in meetings and everyone was okay with that. And leadership did that too. Their kids would show up in meetings. And I told everyone in my group, like, I will have to do work sometimes when my kids are asleep. And so I'll do work at weird hours. When my baby wakes me up, I'll do work in the middle of the night. But you'll see during the day, I can't make some meetings and my work product won't be done by 5 p.m. End of the day for me is like midnight, 1 a.m., right? I do that work when the kids go to bed. And so I also was very transparent with work. You know, I let them know it was hard and work was very open. They were very understanding. They knew it was really hard. And I was transparent with my boss, right? I would tell him, I'm like, look, I'm not at 110% productivity, which I normally am. And I would tell him, I feel guilty. Like I'm doing my projects, but sometimes I have to abandon it because my kids are fighting. You know, they may change their diaper. Something's going on. And people were very accepting because I was open about my struggles also. And I I didn't hold it all inside and act like I could be a superwoman and do it all. That's so wonderful. And I think that communication is so key. And we were talking before the call, I, this week do not have childcare. So I've been very communicative about Mm -hmm. I'm working half time and it's not how I want to be productivity wise, but it's kind of what has to happen right now. Do you think that there is a silver lining to all of this where I would not have felt comfortable saying something like that to management before that I'm only going to work half time because of childcare? You know, I remember being nervous when my kid was sick, what I was going to do. And now I feel like it has broken down those barriers a bit more with the personal and professional life where people understand that you have to be there for your children. That's the number one thing is to be there for your kids and your family. And I think it's going to change the perspective. I've also noticed leadership at our company, bringing kids into meetings, having to leave to pick up kids at school, you know, deal with all kinds of things. And I feel like people used to kind of hide that or figure out jump through tons of hoops to be able to pull it off. And now I feel like it's just more human, at least in terms of the way people can communicate about it. So I don't know if you've also noticed that as a trend or if you think that will stay around, but that's something that I've noticed and have been thinking about and hope fingers crossed that that continues. Yeah, I think it's not only a trend, it's here to stay, where people are understanding, right? They want more women in the workplace, more moms. And Jeff Bezos, you know, had a really great quote that I liked, where it's not about work-life balance anymore, it's about work-life integration. How do you integrate the two of them? And you hear a lot of companies talk about, oh, you know, we pride ourselves on our culture because you can bring your authentic self to work. You know, this is all along that same topic of my authentic self is I'm a struggling mom, right? I'm trying to mom hard and work hard and do both successfully. And I'm going to be transparent about it. You know, I'm, I'm having a hard day. You're going to see me cry in a meeting, which I've already done multiple times and not to be afraid to ask for help. So there were some big projects that we had here going on. And I remember when COVID hit, I was thinking, oh my God, how am I going to do this project? And I literally imagined myself like up in the evenings, weekends, plus my kids are home. Like I never had a quiet moment because it was something that was, it would require a lot of brain power. And when you're not in a quiet office and you can hear your kids like in the other room, it's hard to really do intense work. And I remember my boss said, well, let's get a consultant and help out. And they hired a consultant to help me with that project. 
And so asking for help, I think is something we should do. And if your management doesn't want to, maybe you're not the right company, but here, you know, that actually, I think my boss offered it, right? I was vocal because I didn't think that they would hire someone and put budget toward a consultant, but I obviously was struggling with trying to get my stuff done. And then they said, Hey, let's bring on a consultant to help you with this part-time project. And so she came on, we brought her on for three months, 20 hours a week. And we got that project done. Me working with her. Oh my gosh. It's so nice. I feel like sometimes when you just express what's happening, people that are not in it with you, not having that kind of tunnel vision can bring creative solutions to the table too. So that's so awesome. They were able to get you the support that you needed and it helps the business too. They kept you, they kept the project going. And at the end of the day, I'm sure you had a lot more mental headspace to deal with everything. I remember feeling so grateful. And once that happened, I was thinking, okay, I'm never leaving this team and this group. You know, I'm here to stay. Like it just made me so loyal to Zora and so happy to be here. That's so wonderful. One question that I didn't put on our prep sheet, but wanted to run by you is how do you relax and how do you get some of that headspace being at home with the three kids with such a demanding job? What are some things that you do for you? That's a really great question (laughs) and something I'm trying to work on more. I work a lot with my husband on that, right? Where we talk about, okay, I need this quiet time. Maybe I need some time to myself and he'll take the kids to the park. Like if I've got a big work meeting or I just need to decompress, we'll split things up. He'll take the kids out of the house so it's quiet or I'll take the kids out to the park if I know he's got a big presentation. So we work together like that or I'll work with my nanny like right now, you know, so that it could be quiet in the house. You know, they're downstairs and asked her, you know, please just for one hour, you've got all three, keep him entertained. You know, I want to get through my podcast with Mary. And so it's really teamwork and getting more resources versus less. You know, I know not everyone has a luxury of finding help, but it's relying on my husband, relying on my nanny. And during those times when I'm by myself, I remember thinking like, okay, I've got, you know, an hour and a half. I want to do all these things, literally just take a nap and then not feel guilty about it. Cause I'll realize I'm so exhausted. Like when the kids are home, I think I'm always on my adrenaline is running, just trying to make sure they're safe and not doing something dangerous. The minute my husband takes them out of the house and they're in the park, I suddenly feel this like wave of exhaustion and I'm suddenly aware of my own sleepiness and I'll take a nap and that nap will feel great. And you know what? I didn't fold the laundry. I didn't clean my room, you know, didn't do something, but at least I slept. <laughs> That's so refreshing to hear. I feel like there's so many articles out there about women having it all and, you know, working out for an hour every day and don't forget your 30 minutes of meditation and beauty routines and all of that stuff. But yeah, similarly for me, it's sort of block and tackle and figure out when you can get that time. And I've realized that if I can have 20 minutes to myself in the morning to do a quick walk or hop on a bike, do a little workout, I am in such a better place, but that is so different than my perspective was even a year ago, you know, I would have thought, okay, every day I have to go to the gym for an hour or, you know, do all these things. And now it's just not possible. So it's just kind of finding those bits and pieces of time that you can actually use to make yourself feel like a human being again. And naps are also great. So thanks for sharing that. I'm all about the power nap. So if I know I'm going to take a power nap, I'll text my husband. Hey, going to power nap for the next 20 minutes, locking the door. One time I actually text that mistakenly to an ex coworker and she was like, okay, great. (laughs) I woke up for my power nap. I was like, oh my God, I didn't text my husband. I texted an ex coworker. I don't know how that happened, but. (laughs) I love that she was supportive of it though too. That's great. Well, moving from naps to mentorship, natural progression, but wanted to talk a little bit about who some of your PMM mentors have been over the years and how did you even find a mentor? 
Yeah. So some of my PMM mentors, funny enough, now a lot of them are my previous managers, but it didn't start off that way. So I would say Steve Prowse was one of my previous managers. He's at DocuSign now. Katrina Wong, she's at Segment. Kyle, I teamed up with him again back here at Zora. My existing manager, Lubor, Teen, our CEO. So you know, I think I have a lot of great mentors and they're all mentors in different ways. And how I found some of them was when I made my career switch from finance to tech, I was just networking with people and everyone said, oh, you'd be a great product marketer. And I went on LinkedIn and tried to look up any product marketers that I was connected with. And I found a bunch of them and I started saying, hey, you know, I, I kind of want to break into this space, you know, let's talk. And over time they emerged as my mentors and they told me, okay, this is how you do product marketing, right? This is how you can build your skill set. And then over time, as I had my first job at Responsys and then Oracle, and then I was looking for another job, they ended up hiring me. And so whenever I'm in the market for another job, I'll go to my mentors. And now it's always, Natalie, we always have a space for you here on my team. And if you ever want to come here, you just let me know. And so it's great to develop those relationships because I don't know, I, I do apply what they teach me. And then I follow up and say, oh my God, the advice you gave me was so great. This is what happened. You know, I've since worked for them. And when I work with them, I try to do a really good job. And so you build that relationship over time. That's so wonderful. And I think the follow-up is so important there. Obviously you got started on a great foot with all of them working in management or having them work as your managers, but I think following up and letting them know how they've impacted you, even if it was a smaller piece of advice along the way, really builds that. And what a testament to your awesomeness as a product marketer that they always have spaces for you too. That's really wonderful to hear. I wanted to talk a little bit about career growth and what you think is the most important thing in terms of growing in the product marketing space in that career? Because this is actually kind of act two for you with finance being the first act. What were some things that you really leaned into that helped you get to that next level? Yeah, I think with product marketing, it's learning all the core skill sets of a product marketer, right? How to do messaging, positioning, a product launch. I mean, you have to also look within and know, you know, do you like writing? If someone doesn't like writing, I remember we were interviewing someone and they said they don't like writing. All of us were like, okay, out. I mean, product marketers, you're writing. And so you got to recognize, do you have the core skill sets first, you know, to enjoy it. And then once you're in it, you know, learn all the different playbooks of a product marketer, get the skill sets, but then try to figure out what your superpower is because product marketing has so many different areas, right? Messaging, positioning, competitive Intel, pricing, packaging, product launches. I mean, it goes on and on. We're so strategic and that only keeps growing. You know, what area are you really good in and what do you have a knack for? And really be become an expert there because then you'll stand out and you'll get those projects and you'll continue to be valued for that. And so my superpower was pricing and packaging that became my subject matter expertise at responses and Oracle. I remember thinking at one point, I don't know where this is going, but I'm just going to keep running with it because all these projects are coming my way. And I never said no to a project. And it got to a point where now everybody started contacting me for jobs around that or asking me to speak about it uh, or ask me to contribute to a book about it. And you become very valued for that subject matter expertise. And I have since heard other managers tell our greater product marketing teams, hey, you guys all need to find your superpower, right? If you want to keep growing in your career. So I would press upon that. You know, it's not something you're going to realize right away because you want to test your hand out at all the different people. PMM areas and projects. But if you realize you have a knack for something and it comes naturally, keep honing that and keep asking for more projects in that area and become an expert where now people are coming to you for advice and the frameworks and how to do it really well. 
I love that advice because we talk a lot about building the toolkit, which you also recommended and understanding all the different facets of product marketing, but it's almost as if having that superpower can also give you the confidence to knock everything else out of the park with product marketing as well. If you know pricing and packaging, well, surely you can understand positioning and messaging and build that into your suite of expertise and have that kind of build out from there. But I really like that being known for something and then building out your personal brand brand, building out your experience and just really going deep in that area. I'm glad you shared that. I wanted to talk a little bit about networking as well. So how do you network? Are you networking right now this year with everything going on? And what are some ways that you found that to be successful? Yeah, I feel like with networking, a lot of people will reach out and they want to talk to me about something. A lot of people reach out now because my superpower about pricing. Hey, I'm doing a book. Can I interview you? I'm writing a paper. Can I'm doing a school project? Can I interview you? I always say yes, pretty much all of them because I'll eventually find time in my calendar. It may not be this week or this month, but I can get them in my calendar, right? And I find that when you're open to other people trying to network with you and you kind of get that energy back. And so I can go back to these people down the road and say, Hey, you know, can I talk to you? So I think it's kind of a give and a get, right? If you ignore everybody, right, that's trying to reach out to you, then why are people ever going to want to say yes to you trying to network with them? So I think it's kind of that energy. And also LinkedIn really has been the way of networking (laughs) in this past year. So on LinkedIn, a lot of people try to add, yes, there's people trying to sell me stuff. Sometimes I'll add them, but I'll let them know, hey, no, not the right conversation, not looking to buy any software. But I feel like LinkedIn is a great way to begin where when you add somebody, I think you always have to put a note versus the blanket connect. I know that when people put a note, when they add me on LinkedIn and I see it's relevant, I'll usually add them because there's a reason. So I find that when I try to connect with people on LinkedIn, I always add a note. I wouldn't just blindly try to sync with someone. It's just like going to a networking event, right? You talk to somebody, you introduce yourself. You don't just go up to them and just expect them to just start talking, right? That's weird. It's, hey, I'm Natalie, you know, wanted to talk about blah, blah, blah. Or I don't know, there's got to be some kind of a conversation, an introduction. That's really great advice and really great tactical advice too, because I think that we talk about LinkedIn kind of in blanket terms, but how to use it most effectively. Just double clicking on that a little bit. Do you find that when people ask you more specific questions, you're more willing to network? So for example, they want to interview you for this book rather than, Hey, I'd love to talk about pricing or, Hey, I'd love to talk about product marketing. Is there something that kind of draws you in a little bit more to show that they were maybe a little bit more thoughtful about the ask? Yeah, I would say both of them work because it's, hey, we're in the same industry. Want to connect with other people in my industry. Want to see what insights you're posting. Or if, even if it is specific, the fact that there was just at least a note there so I know why they want to connect is huge. And another way to connect with people too is if you're trying to network and research something or even look for another job, whenever you're talking to someone, ask them to do an introduction, right? Because there's nothing stronger than a friendly introduction where you're talking to a former colleague or a friend about a certain topic you're researching, right? Product marketers, were always researching things. And I always ask, is there anyone else in your network that you feel like you could introduce me to that would know about this topic? And I've never had a friend say no. They always think of someone or they think, let me think about it. Let me get back to you. And then they introduce me to the next person, right? And then that next person introduced me to the next person. So don't be afraid of making an ask to the person that you're talking to right now, because you form that connection. Of course, they're going to want to introduce you to someone else in their network that may be relevant. 
That's such fantastic advice. And then your network just grows and grows. Eat with each person, you get someone new to talk to. So that yeah. is wonderful. So I want to make sure that we have some time to talk about why product marketing, but I also want to make sure you have a little bit of time at the end to talk about some of the new roles that you're hiring for. So let's talk about why product marketing. And then I want to hear about the different roles you're hiring for. Yes. I love product marketing because it uses left brain and your right brain. There's an art to it and also a science. And I find really strong product marketers appreciate both sides of that. And they're also very strong in it. You know, we look at a lot of data, we do a lot of research, but then when you get the data, right, that's where the art comes in of what does this data mean? And how do I turn it into well-written messaging, positioning that resonates and connects with somebody? So there's that emotional aspect and the art side of it. And then there's the, you know, going back to testing, battle testing your messaging, right? So it's going back to the sheer fact of going and testing it, looking at more data. Is it working? Is it resonating? And then iterating. Okay, apply the art side to it. How do I iterate it? How do I finally achieve the outcome that I want with my messaging position? And so I like that. I like the iterative process. And I like, it's all about getting down to the why. If there's one theme in product marketing, it's always the why. And with that simple word, you can always get to the core of what your message is by saying, well, why am I saying this? Okay, well, then why would I say that? Why should they care? Why? And I keep getting to the why to get to like the essence of what you're trying to tell people, right? In very simple terms that they can understand. So I like that process. Okay. I was going to say you're taking a cue from your kids asking why, at least my kiddos asking why. <laughs> so take you from your child on that one. That's really great though. Yeah. Using the left and right side of your brain is definitely a draw for this. It's always exciting. I feel like it's very well-rounded. So love that. And yes, last question. Can you tell us more about these three roles that you're hiring for and what you're looking for? Yeah. So our team has three open roles. Two are posted. One isn't. We're still working on that job description. We're looking for a director, a senior manager, and a manager. So we're looking for all levels here. As we grow, there are opportunities on the product marketing strategy side to work on portfolio messaging and positioning, competitive Intel messaging and positioning. There's openings on our horizontal core product marketing team to own some of our product, you know, our platform product, our revenue product, and work with the other product owners. And so so we're hiring. We've got a lot of open headcount here. And yeah, I'd encourage people to go to Zora.com and look at it. If they got any questions, definitely sync up with me on LinkedIn. So we've got something for everybody, I feel like. That is so fantastic. Well, excited to see that you're growing and that PMM is growing and you're hiring. Wish you all the best of luck in your new role and also getting these roles filled as well. And thanks so much for the conversation. This has been so fun. I love hearing more about PMMing your life. Definitely going to use that in my daily (laughs) conversations and just had such a wonderful chat with you, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Mary. This was fun. All right. Thank you. Women in Product Marketing is proudly supported by Clue. That's Clue with a K, the competitive enablement platform for all product marketers. This podcast is produced by ShareBird, the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It is the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. And if you have any feedback on our episodes, so things that you liked or things you want to hear more of, please send me a note on LinkedIn or feel free to email podcasts at sharebird.com. That wraps another episode of Women in Product Marketing. Be sure to subscribe and share Women in Product Marketing with someone you think will love it. Next week, I speak with Christina Rattazzi, Front's Head of Product Marketing. Thank you for all of your support and catch you next week.